Greetings, I am your host, Tina Clark, and welcome to the second season of my Weirdest Experience podcast. This is the show of the weirdest experience that has ever happened to you and gives you a venue to fully express yourself and share your weirdest story with the world. This is the No Judgment Zone, a safe place to share your experience. And it's also a place where we discuss what happened to you and share some possible theories on what and why this happened. If you would like to be on the show, email me at contactstargazingangel at gmail.com. Hi friends, thanks for listening. This is your host of the Weirdest Experience podcast, Tina Clark. I also wanted to share with you, I have my own energy healing business called Stargazing Angel LLC. I offer energy healing sessions, EFT tapping sessions, tarot readings, and I also offer classes on Reiki, shamanism, and tarot and more. If you're interested in having a session with me, please call 843-695-7218. Or you can email me at contactstargazingangel at gmail.com. You can also check out my website, which is www.tinakinneyclark.com. That's T-I-N-A-K-I-N-N-E-Y-C-L-A-R-K-E. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. I have Vic Ferrari here. He is a retired police officer and author of six books. And he is currently retired in Florida now, but he is going to share some of his craziest and weirdest stories with us. And we know that New York City in general is a weird place to be. I'm from New York City. And um, he's a native New Yorker too. So we were kind of reminiscing on what it was like to grow up in New York in the 70s and the 80s. So welcome to the show, Vic. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I really appreciate it. Sure. So um, tell us a little bit more about yourself and your books, and we can just jump right into your experiences. Sure. My name is Vic Ferrari. I'm a retired 20 uh, year member of the New York City Police Department. When I was a little boy, that's the only thing I ever wanted to do. I grew up in the 70s. We had the Rockford Files, the French Connection, all these police shows. When I was a little boy, my mother would take me to a movie theater, which was around the corner from a police station. So on Saturdays, when I would walk by the police station, I'd run up to the police car and I'd like put my face in the glass and look at the hats and the nightsticks. And I'd watch how the cops hung around in front of the precinct and how they interacted And I'm like, these guys got something going on. One day I'm going to drive one of those police cars and chase the bad guy. By 10, my friends and I used to sneak into the local post office and steal wanted FBI wanted posters and go around the neighborhood with wanted posters, like going into the local deli with like Billy Ray Johnson wanted for armed robbery in Arkansas. And I'm like in the deli looking at some poor guy getting a sandwich. That could be him. So it's like I always knew I wanted to be a cop and a detective. By 20, I took the police exam. And by 21, I was a New York City police officer. I worked in various units and plain, I worked in plainclothes 15 out of 20 years. I worked in the narcotics division. I wasn't an undercover per se, 
but uh, I did purchase drugs. I did buy and bust operations. And my last 10 years, I was a detective in the NYPD's auto crime division, where we covered everything. Anything you wanted to know about the stolen car industry and were afraid to ask is what I handled. Um, chop shops, garden variety, car thieves, exporting stolen vehicles out of the country, the mafia, identity theft, worked all those cases. And after a 20 year career, it was time to call it quits. I retired, I moved down to sunny Florida. I got bored and uh, friends and family encouraged me to get into writing. And I just started writing these books that are filled with stories from my NYPD career. Yeah, you mentioned off when we, before we start started recording the episode about the the stolen cars. I think it was a hundred and fifty thousand stolen vehicles a year. Well, yeah, in the my, early nineties. Yeah. Yeah. The, the well, my that. mom's car got stolen. So here's a good story. So it's quick. So it's not too long. But she had an Audi that was a like a I forget what their original color was, but whoever stole it repainted it. And that's what tipped off the police. The police checked, you know, and realized, oh, this is a stolen vehicle. It's been reported. So my mom got her car back. Yeah, we used to do that. They probably changed the vehicle identification number. They do it. They do that all the time. And what they probably did was because it was probably a newer Audi. They probably went to Earl Scheib. If you remember him, he had franchises where they would paint any car, any color for ninety nine bucks and you get what you pay for. It probably was so obvious. Here's a new car with no body damage to it. And it's this yeah. ridiculous color. Like, why yeah. would somebody do that? <laughs> yep. So she actually got her car back. So what story do you want to share with us? What do you want to start with today? Your okay, bestest, so weirdest story that you could tell. I'll start with funny. So in my book, NYPD Law and Disorder, the opening chapter is called Embarrassing Moments. And everybody's had an embarrassing moment. And authors conveniently try to leave the truth out. They always, in stories, they try to paint themselves as the hero saving the day in the nick of time or having the quick comeback. And they can, we can get away with that because it's our narrative. But I, I decided to write the opening chapter of that book about a couple of embarrassing moments that happened in my NYPD career. So it was the early 90s. I'm on patrol in the Bronx. It was the end of our shift. We're circling the precinct like buzzards to get to drop our car off and get changed. And I noticed a gypsy cab drive by. And in the back seat, there's three guys in the back seat of this gypsy cab. And one of the guys is hanging over the front seat with his head next to the driver. Gypsy cabs are usually unlicensed cabs that people drive, they, they, they cruise the subways, they cruise bus stops, and they'll charge you a buck to take you to destination. They usually don't have a license or insurance. So we had had a rash of these cabs getting robbed, and with the three guys in the back seat, one leaning over, over, the, over the seats, I told my partner, go follow that cab, see where he's going. Well, immediately after we start tailing the cab, he starts blowing through red lights. So we put on our emergency lights, tap the siren, it pulls over to the side. My partner and I get out of the radio car. We're approaching from the back. And what do I see in the back seat? But there's three guys in the back seat with a shopping bag and they're passing this thing around like a hot potato. Nobody wants this bag. You take it, you take it. Bag rip, rips open and there's four kilos of cocaine in the back seat of the cat, right? So we pull them out of the car. We throw everybody in handcuffs. We take them into the precinct. And it's like winning the Stanley Cup. When, when, you, come up, when you come into the precinct with an exceptional rest like that, everybody's like, where did you get this? And I'm walking around with the kilos and we're taking photos of it. Big hero, right? So I'm on top of the world. 
In New York City, when you make an arrest that day, you have to meet with the district attorney to file charges. So the bad guys went down to jail. Two lieutenants from my precinct took the cocaine down to the lab. I'm still in uniform. I go down to the Bronx courthouse about six o'clock at night to write up this arrest to meet with a district attorney. Well, anybody that's from the Bronx knows the area around the Bronx courthouse is not a nice area. When the when court when you know regular court is no longer in session, that whole neighborhood closes down. It's like one greasy spoon diner up the block. There was no place really to eat, but they had just opened up this brand new food court across the street. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to celebrate. I'm going to go across the street and get something to eat. They had, an, uh, they had an Italian restaurant in there. I ordered a you know chicken parm and spaghetti, and I'm sitting there. I'm in uniform across the street from the courthouse, and I'm reflecting on these arrests. I'm like, oh, this is great. You know, maybe I'll get promoted to detective. You know, I'm just on top of the world. I've always had problems with my stomach my entire life. I continue to. No one's been able to figure it out. I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh, I got to go. So the, the bathroom across the street in the Bronx courthouse is a dungeon. And usually out of toilet paper. I can't go there. But I'm like, OK, well, this food court's got it's a brand new facility. They've got to have a brand new bathroom. Get up, dump my food, go into the bathroom. It's like a cathedral. It's clean. No one's ever been in this place before. I go into the stall. I take off my gun belt. I hang it on a hook on the door. I, take, I loosen my belt. I sit on the bowl. I'm getting ready for liftoff. And the next thing I know, I hear in the front of the bathroom, the door kick in. And I hear five or six teenagers run into the bathroom. And they're, you know, roughhousing around. They're turning on the sinks. They're fighting. They're hitting the, uh, the hand dryers are going off one at a time. And I'm like, yeah, I'm in uniform, but I got my pants down to the ground. I'm kind of vulnerable. I, I better finish up here and get the hell out of here, right? For whatever reason, it got quiet. And I'm saying to myself, well, that's odd. Did they leave? Something told me to look up. I'm sitting on the ball. I look up. One of the teenagers went into the stall next to me, jumped up on top of the toilet, and is reaching over the stall wall trying to grab my gun belt. So I'm like, oh, shit. I jump up with my <laughs> left hand and start pulling up my pants, trying to pull my pants up with my left hand. My right hand, I grab him around the neck, like the shirt collar. And when I pull him, what do I do? I inadvertently pull him over the stall a little bit more, that much closer. He grabs my gun belt. Now I'm like, oh, shit. I let go of my pants now and go down to my ankles. I've got him by the neck. He's got my gun belt. And I'm just punching him. Let go, let go, let go. As I'm fighting with him, his friends run into the next stall. They grab him around the legs. And now they're pulling him back over the wall. So it's a tug of war with a 16-year-old over this cheesy metal partition in the bathroom stall, which now is starting to bend. Finally, he lets go of the gun belt. It hits the floor. I let go of him. He sails over the wall and crushes that wall. I pull up my pants, I put on my gun belt, I run out into the food court and they're gone. They're gone. There's not a soul in that food court. And in the book I write, what was I supposed to do at that point? Call the police? The responding cops would have showed up and I would have been a laughing stock of the Bronx. So I said, you know what? I'm going to keep this one to myself. And I did yep. for over 30 years before I decided to write this book. Wow. Remember the time when there was no bathrooms that you could use in the city? <laughs> That's my point. That's my point. It was like, yeah. And the one that I found, I got, you know, I got screwed around with. Yeah. Like, thank God for Starbucks because they started letting people use their bathrooms. But I, 
I grew up in New York when you couldn't find a bathroom. You were out of luck. Like, oh, well, think about this. You know, people, when you watch on television on New Year's Eve, they show Times Square and they show everybody having a good time. Not so. Those people are packed in like cattle and wooden pens. And if you leave, there's not a, there is no place to use the bathroom because all those restaurants in the theater district, they've been burned before. Unless you've got reservations there, you're not getting into that bathroom. So inside that crowd, there's people, you, there's people urinating on each other. There's people throwing up on each other. There's people changing tampons in that crowd. It's, it's the most disgusting, vile thing you've ever seen in your life. So if anybody out there, don't go down to Times Square on New Year's Eve. It, it, it's just it's just a, a cavalcade of human debris. Well, that was my thing because um, I could never figure out how people could stand there for hours and not go to the bathroom. And I never tried it. Like I actually did it once. I went to New Year's Eve in New York City and I got there. It was kind of a last minute decision. So I got there late. So meaning like 8 p.m. It was already packed in there. Oh, so yeah. I think I think I was on one of those side streets. I don't know exactly where I was, but people had champagne and like beer and stuff and they were shaking it and then they were popping it. And we I was completely soaked. It was crazy. Oh, and then when the crowd breaks up after midnight, you get all you get you get all the hood rats from the Bronx, Brooklyn, Manhattan, and what they do is they're sober as a judge, and they'll it's like watching hyenas on on uh, on Animal Planet. They'll go off down to the side streets, and they know people got to take the train to get out of there, and they hide down side streets, and they follow drunks, and then the next thing you know, someone comes running up to you. You know, they got a knot on their head. Someone just took my watch. Someone just took my camera because. You know, they get down there about 10, 11 o'clock at night. They just start watching drunks. They watch, they watch behavior. It's, it's very um, primitive. Yeah. So you kept that story to yourself for 30 years, huh? <laughs> yeah, over. Yeah. <laughs> so what, what about Hansel and Gretel? You hinted at a story related to that that you'd like to tell. Yeah. Hansel and Gretel. So it's the early 90s. And uh, my, fr my friends and I, you know, we got young and we got energy. We're going to bars after work. There were cop bars and you would get cops from different precincts hanging out and having a couple of drinks. I worked with a guy later in my career, but at the time, he worked with this guy that was an amateur magician who was a cop. And we'd be in the bar talking to girls and he would come over to girls and start pulling flowers out of his sleeve and pulling coins behind the ear. He was basically cock blocking everybody with magic. So I turned to my old partner and I go, get this fucking guy out of here. How do you compete with this? Like, just get him out of here. And my old partner said, he goes, you know, it's funny. He goes, he's the laziest cop in the world. He goes, if he took his NYPD career as serious as he did making balloon animals for kids on Saturdays, he goes, he'd be the greatest cop in the world. So anyway, a couple of weeks later, my old partner and the magician get called out. It's a midnight. They get called out to this basement apartment for calls for help. That's all it was. Calls for help, they hang up. So they go into the basement of the six-story walk-up and you've got two apartments, two superintendent apartments. So they go to door number one and they bang on door number one. Nobody answers. So my old partner goes to bang on door number two and the magician stops him. He goes, what are you banging on that door for? He goes, 
Don't worry about it. We made so much noise down here. If someone called line one one, they would have come out already. Forget about it. Let's go. So they leave. What they didn't realize was behind door number two, the super of the building was selling coke out of the apartment. And he got addicted. He got addicted to the poison he was selling. And he fell behind on his payments with his wholesaler. Now, in the drug world, they don't send friendly reminders or cancel your cable. <laughs> they sent a couple of hitmen to take care of him. So I guess they had tried to get him a couple of times before and they couldn't get him. So they used it's an old gypsy trick. They brought an attractive female. They knock on the door. They put the attractive female in front of the peephole. The super sees her and goes, oh, wow, found money. He opens the door. The two hitmen push into the apartment. They're pistol whipping him. Where's the money? Where's the drugs? He doesn't have the answer. They shoot him in the head. They roll him up in a carpet. They drag him out to the furnace of the building and they throw him in the furnace. They go back into apartment number two when they're ransacking the place looking for money or drugs or whatever they could find. And now my old partner and the magician are outside about to knock on that door. So what they didn't know was inside that apartment, just before my old partner knocked on the door, the bad guys came up with this plan. They told the female who's in on this, listen, let them in. Start yelling in Yugoslavian and point to the kitchen. Walk them down the hallway. Don't speak English. Just yell in Yugoslavian, point to the kitchen. When, when you pass the bedroom, when you pass the threshold of this bedroom, throw yourself on the floor. We're going to come around from behind them. We'll shoot them in the head and then we'll take them out into the furnace and we'll get rid of them. Well, they never knocked on that door. So they leave. The bad guys leave. And about two weeks or a week later, the superintendent's family starts you know, looking for their relative. What happened to this guy? He just vanished. So the detectives get involved and they see that there was a, a run, a call to that apartment the week before. So they bring in my old partner, the magician, and they go, did you notice any suspicious or anything funny? And my old partner goes, well, I knocked on that door, but we never knocked on this door. So they said, oh, all right. And he goes, but the thing is, he goes, when we left that apartment, there was a car parked on a fire hydrant outside that I gave the, gave a ticket. Well, that was the getaway car that was registered to the female. So through that parking ticket, it's the same way they caught the son of Sam. So with, through that parking ticket, they were able to bring in the female who starts now backpedaling. You know, she tells them what happened, trying to minimize her involvement, of course, but she's involved in it. And they arrested her. They found the two Albanian hitmen. And then the detectives had to go back to that building once they figured out what happened and shut the heat off to that building. They had to leave the heat off to that building for a couple of days, which in the middle of February, everybody's freezing their ass off so they could get into that that furnace to get mm-hmm. that guy's skull and bones out. So that's that's a story from my book, NYPD Through the Looking Glass. It's called Last Night a Magician Saved My Life because had my partner listened to the magician, they'd have been in that incinerator. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I remember like um, there were buildings in New York that when the garbage chute went to some kind of incinerator or fire, literally in the basement. (laughs) Do they still have that kind of setup or is that like a total fire hazard? I don't think they're going to stop until something happens. You know what I mean? The garbage has got to go somewhere. I think in some buildings they still do it. Yeah, it's crazy. Wow. Uh, well, I got another wild story that took place in, 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 in a super's basement. Um, was It was later in my career. I was a detective in the auto crime division, and I had made several high-profile arrests that had nothing to do with auto crime. 
I walked into a game. I walked into a bodega to buy a soda and I walked into a gambling den, locked everybody up, had a couple of things like that. And my Lieutenant calls me in and he goes, I love your activity. Stick to autocrime. He goes, you're pissing off vice. You're pissing off this unit. He goes, just stick to autocrime. I go, listen, I'm not looking for this stuff. It just kind of jumps in my lap. He goes, well, the next time there's a judgment call like that, he goes, call the office. Done. No problem. So a couple of weeks later, my Sergeant comes to me and says, um, we're having a rash of these Vespa motor scooters that are getting stolen all over the Upper, upper East Side. I said, all right. He goes, do me a favor. He goes, try to find out what, who's stealing these things and see if you can put a dent in it. I said, all right. So I run a license plate of one of these Vespa motor scooters that's stolen and it comes back recovered. It was recovered with an arrest in the South Bronx. So I said, okay, it's probably teenagers. They're going up to the Upper East Side. They're stealing these Vespas. They're bringing them back to their neighborhood and they're driving around with them. So the way I figured is I'll go up there. It's over by Yankee Stadium. And I'm probably going to pick off three, four kids driving these stolen Vespas because they're hunting over there and bringing them back to you. Go up to, it was off of Hawkstone Avenue in the Grand Concord. I'm driving around, no Vespas, no nothing, right? So um, I said, you know, I said, if these kids are stealing these things, they're probably keeping the Vespas in, in the superintendent's common area beneath the building. And, and for those of you that don't know, like a common area in a building is where the super keeps the garbage cans, people store their bicycles, the snowblower for the thing, extra people pay for storage back there in the basement. So my partner and I go to this neighborhood, get out of the car, and one by one, we're going building to building, knocking on the super's apartment, hi, I'm Detective Ferrari from the Auto Crime Division, do you mind if we take a look in your common area, we're looking for stolen vespers. And all these superintendents, they couldn't have been nicer and more cooperative. Like they were actually drilled and someone wanted to see like these subterranean, their underground layers. And they're opening these things and showing us. We hit about four or five of them, no vestments. So there was one more building on the corner. I says, come on, let's hit that one. We go down there, I knock on the super's apartment and I hear giggling and I, I could smell marijuana and I hear giggling, right? So the door opens and I'm not making this up. The super, he was like under five feet tall, had a Great head of black hair. He looked like Tattoo from Fantasy Island. And he was stoned out of his mind. So I said, how you doing, my friend? I said, listen, I says, would it be okay if I look at your common area? And he's just staring at me. And I'm like, are you okay? And he's like, yeah, yeah, oh, okay. So he gets a ring of keys and he's just a nervous wreck. Like, I'm like, you know, I don't care about the marijuana. I really don't. It's in his apartment. <laughs> I don't give a shit. And he's dropping his keys. He's a nervous wreck. He gets to the common area, he opens it up, he slides this, this, this wall opens, and on the floor, there's got to be fucking a hundred chickens and roosters just running around, puts the light on, just running around on the floor. And I'm like, holy shit, I know what this is. This is a cockfighting gladiator school or a cockfighting ring, right? So you got chickens and roosters running around the floor, and on the wall, you got pods, like crates of other birds. I'm guessing those were like the fighting cocks, like the ones that they couldn't be around the other one. Had been about 200 birds down there, right? And he's looking at me and I'm looking at him and I'm saying to myself, I'm going to fucking throw the cuffs on this guy. My, my partner's like, I know what you're thinking. He goes, remember that speech you just got? I said, all right. Go, all right, Poppy, no problem. I go, no Vespas? He goes, no, no Vespas. I go, okay. He goes, okay. He was like, he want, he, he thought I was going to like, no, that's all right. I don't give a shit. Thing. Go, all right, thanks. He locks up. And we leave, right? As soon as we get out to the car, I get on the cell phone, I call my sergeant, I go, listen, I just fucking walked into the world's biggest cockfighting ring. 
I says, send the cavalry down here. I says, I says, we got a really good arrest. He goes, what, what, what did the lieutenant tell you? I says, well, I says, call him. He goes, well, he left for the day. He goes, listen, call the ASPCA and be done with this. And I'm like, are you sure? He goes, call the ASPCA. I'm like, fuck. I'm like, all right, whatever. Call the ASPCA. And there was a television show called Animal Precinct on Animal Planet. Do you remember mm-hmm. that? Yeah. It, it was like a reality show that followed around the ASPCA police. Mm-hmm. And the guy that answered the phone was like one of the guys I used to watch. Like, it was like not, it was like mindless, but I used to watch it to fall asleep. And the guy answered the phone, right? And uh, I go, listen, I says, you know, I stumbled upon this thing. And he goes, holy shit. Like he, you could tell he's writing down. He goes, this is going to be a huge fine for us. He goes, you sure you don't want this? I go, listen, I was told stick to auto crime, be my guest. He goes, I'll tell you what. He goes, let us look into it. He goes, if we get a warrant for this place, he goes, I'll call you up. He goes, I'll call you the day before. And maybe you can make a couple hours overtime or something. I said, all right. Month goes by. I don't hear a thing. I'm like, all right. I took a couple of days off and I'm helping my dad install a fence in the backyard. That's another funny story. My father didn't know how to use an auger and he's drilling holes with this thing and he hit a root and my father's spinning around in a circle holding on to the auger. I'm like, let go of the fucking thing. I had a hit to knock him off the side of it. And then he's like, you tore my shirt. I'm like, tore your shirt. You your fucking arms on this thing. So anyway, I'm in the backyard with my father, sweat my balls off, trying to put in this fence. My cell phone rings. It's the guy from the ASPCA. And he says, um, listen, he goes, everything you said was spot on. He says, we're going to get a search warrant for this tomorrow. Do you, do you, do you want to be involved in this? I said, nah, you know what? I was told to stay the frig out of it. Be my guest. Enjoy. He goes, okay. The next day, it's all over every newspaper in New York. ASPCA raids the largest cockfighting ring in New York City history, right? So I come in. I think it's funny, you know, because... So my sergeant picks up the paper and he's showing it to me. He goes, this is the thing you were talking about, right? Over by Hawkstone Avenue. I go, yeah. He goes, oh, all right. So my sergeant goes and tells the lieutenant. He goes, yeah. He goes, did you see this? He goes, Ferrari stumbled upon this. Now, as much as my lieutenant didn't want me getting involved in anything else, my lieutenant was the, a publicity hound. He never met a press conference he didn't like. He would throw his own mother in front of a subway train to get involved in a press conference. He was one of these guys. He always had his nose pressed against the glass, trying to get into that room. So he was always trying to get a press conference going. Never in his wildest dreams could he have imagined something like this would have hit the front page of the Daily News. So my sergeant goes and tells him, yeah, that's the thing. And he calls me and goes, what the fuck is wrong with you? He goes, this could have been a big thing for us. I go, you told me to stick to auto crime. So that's a story from my book, Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's auto crime division. And the story's called It's Not Auto Crime because everything I got involved <laughs> with, they didn't want me to get involved in. And the one thing I gave away turned out to be a big thing. And then, you know, everybody's upset that they didn't get there, you know, get to see, get themselves on, on the six o'clock news. Yeah, you were just following the rules. They told you. Oh, yeah. I mean. So yeah. I have a question. Sure. You found all these roosters i assume and in this space don't roosters make a lot of noise don't they yeah i would think nobody heard these chickens and birds and roosters (laughs) well okay so places like the bronx brooklyn um parts of manhattan they don't call the police for a lot of things and (laughs) You know, it's either they just went on with their lives and didn't care. Maybe there were people in the building that were invested in that. 
You know what I mean? Yeah, like, true. Maybe people got paid off. Uh, you know, you're right. I mean, it wasn't just the super. You know what I mean? It, that could have been entertainment for that building. It could have been like six o'clock cockfight. You know, you know yeah. what I mean? So yeah. I don't, I don't, but although I don't think that they were doing the fighting in there, I think that was like a weighing station or like a gladiator school or, you know what I mean? I know nothing about cockfighting. Where, but where you store the birds. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what they like to eat. What's a good fighting feed for your cock. You, you know what I mean? Like, I, I know nothing about this. Yeah, all I know is roosters are really annoying and they're very loud and they crow 24-7. Not just in the morning. And they're really loud. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> well, that's a good, that's a good one. I like that story. You have any, yeah, we have time for one more if you want to get into one more. Okay, so this is going to be a morbid one that actually turns out to be kind of funny. So it's the early 90s and um, working at a precinct in the Bronx and my partner and I are leaving. We were on a meal hour in the precinct and we were walking out and it didn't come over 911. It came through the precinct phone system and female cop hands me a piece of paper and she goes, can you go up to Webb Avenue? There was, there's, there's, um, it sounds like a cardiac over the phone. I said, all right. So my partner and I rush up there and... Uh, we're it's like a third or fourth floor. We're going up the stairs and you're hearing screaming and crying. Like, oh shit. So we run up the stairs. Apartment is filled with people. We're just pushing people out of our way. Move, move, move. And the kitchen was a galley. So as I, as we get close to the kitchen, I see a pair of legs sticking out of the kitchen on the floor. Get into the kitchen. There's blood everywhere, like palm prints and blood all over the kitchen on the cabinets. On the floor, there's a woman who's been repeatedly stabbed and her son is on top of her just wailing, mom, mom, mom. We get him off of her. And if you've ever cut your finger, you know that blood is bright red. And over time, as oxygen gets to it, it turns like a rust color. And all the blood in the apartment was rust colored. So it was obvious she had been gone for quite some time, several hours. So we put we put Sonny Boy on the couch and... Um, uh, the apartment's ransacked. So we're just, we're not putting the screws to him. It's just me and my partner. And I get on the radio, I'm calling for the cavalry, get get the medical examiner, get EMS, get the detectives, bring the sergeant over here. So while we're waiting for that, um, we're not putting the screws to this kid. We're just asking him what happened. Like, when was the last time you saw your mother? And he goes, he goes from crying and hysterical to, when was the last time I saw my mother? Yeah. When was the last time you saw your mother? Uh, two hours ago. Um, did she have any enemies? Do you think you might've done it? Do I think who might've done this? So now he's repeating everything I'm asking him. He's repeating back. He get, he's getting really weird. That doesn't mean he did it, but at the same time, it heightens your suspicion because he's buying time for an answer. Why would somebody do that? Mm -hmm. As I'm looking around the apartment, it becomes apparent that yeah, it's ransacked, but it's been staged. When a burglar breaks into your house or apartment, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to start pulling open drawers and dumping the contents on the floor. They're on the clock. They don't want to get caught. So they don't have time to dump the contents out of your drawer and put it back in. So all the drawers were dumped and, all the, and they were all placed back in. On top of that, the woman's bag was dumped upside down, put right side up. It would have been tossed. And there were still credit cards there, which in the 90s, nobody knew you could track credit cards. Why would they leave the credit cards behind? So the detectives get there. They bring him to the precinct. My partner and I are uh, I'm processing the crime scene. 
when someone dies in New York City, the, the responding cops have to write, it's called a toe tag. It's a little oak tag with a piece of string. You've got to write your name, your information, the victim's information and tie it to their big toe. So the medical examiner's office takes the deceased out. Um, we go to the precinct and the kid is being evasive. You know, like I wasn't in on the interviews, but from the detectives that were walking in and out are like, you know, maybe he did it, maybe he didn't, but he's really acting weird, you know, for someone that just lost his mother. Well, the victim had three brothers that lived in the next building. So the three brothers, his uncles, show up to the precinct and they're asking the detectives question. The detective's like, look, we're not saying your nephew did it, but he definitely knows more than he's saying. Maybe you can get it out of him. So that night, he wanted the kid wanted to leave. They didn't have enough to charge him. And they knew if they kept pushing him, he was going to ask for a lawyer, which means all bets are up. So the detectives told that the uncles, maybe you can get it out of him, talk to him. Everybody leaves, everybody goes home for the night. So with the NYPD, I was, I was the first cop on the scene. I had to fill out that 95 tag and put it on the victim's foot. The following morning, you have to go to the morgue. The responding cop that processed that crime scene has to go to the morgue and identify the body for identification purposes because so many people die in New York City of natural and unnatural causes that they wind up in the medical examiner's office. They wanna make sure the right body goes to the right autopsy. So I go down to the morgue and I think there was a, they had just switched over to Jacoby Hospital. This is up in the Bronx. It was a Saturday, Sunday morning, the skeleton crew working. I show up at the morgue. There's like a 25 year old kid working there. And I said, hi, I have my paperwork. And I said, I, I need to see this person, the deceased. Kid goes, all right. He walks into this refrigerated room and he wheels out a gurney and he flips the sheet off of, and it's a black guy with a beard. And I go, no, this, I, I says, my deceased is a Hispanic, middle-aged Hispanic female. He goes, oh, puts the sheet back over the black guy's head. He wheels him back in. A couple of minutes later, he wheels out another body, flips off the sheet. It's a white homeless guy. I'm like, dude, I didn't come down here to see everybody that died in the Bronx last night. I'm here to see this woman. I said, let me go in there. So I walk into this large refrigerator room. Some medical examiner's offices have the, the drawers that slide like you see on television. This was just a big refrigerated room with the fluorescent light above that crackled. It was like a horror scene. And there was like 10, 12 dead people in there. The smell was awful, even though it's refrigerated. And um, I started looking at the feet and I saw the woman's name. The sheet had blood on it because it had soaked overnight. I pulled it over. I go, yeah, that's her. So I identified the body. I go back to the precinct and the detectives are celebrating. I'm like, what happened? Did he give it up? And they go, yeah, what wound up happening was the detectives got up bright and early the next morning and they went back to the building to catch him first thing in the morning, hoping they could get something out of him. The building was a really big building. Well, you grew up in Manhattan, so you would know that some of those buildings, even in the Bronx, have those big uh, decadent lobbies. Yeah. So when they went into the lobby, there was like a turn. And when they went into the lobby, they could hear arguing. And in the hallway was um, the son's three uncles putting the screws to him. Like, what happened? You got to tell us what happened. You know what more that's going on. And thank God the detectives that were there spoke Spanish. So they overheard the kid telling his, telling his uncles. Basically, what happened was he was a crackhead. He'd get on crack. He'd get off crack. 
she was over it and now he was stealing from her. So she told, she confronted him in, in the apartment and said, listen, I can't have you living here. I can't live like this. I can't have you in here if, if, if you're using drugs. He picked up a carving knife and basically did a number on a stabbed her multiple times, changed his clothes, put the murder weapon in his clothes in a plastic trash bag, left the apartment and left the door ajar. His plan was to leave, to get rid of the evidence and when he returned, someone else would have found her in the building, one of her neighbors, or somebody would have found her, and then he would have started the story from there. What wound up happening is he comes back three, four hours later, no one's found her, and he's in the apartment. Now he's got a problem. People seen him come into the apartment just now. Mm-hmm. So that's when he gets on the phone, he calls the precinct, he calls his uncles, he starts making phone calls, and he goes into the hysterics act. And... Um, he was sentenced to many years in prison, and I just checked recently. He's been in jail since 1994, and he's still there, and I think he still should be there. Yeah, so if someone dies suspiciously, uh, do they always do an autopsy on the body? Yeah, yeah so the, in the NYPD, whenever someone dies, be it in the street, in an apartment, a funeral home's not going to take you until the police respond. The police, let's say it's a 90, say your 90 year old grandmother who lived alone or lives with somebody, dies in an apartment. The police get there and they'll start looking around. They'll look to see all her medications. They'll, from the medications, they'll call the physician. They'll, they'll do a preliminary investigation. Yeah, she had a bad heart. Yeah, blah, 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 blah. Then they'll call the medical examiner. The medical examiner, usually responds it depends it can be an hour it can be 24 hours they're really busy medical examiner will get there he'll look he'll look at the medications he'll look at the deceased he'll you know and he'll okay yeah she can be yeah this isn't a suspicious death then you tell the funeral you tell the family yeah you can make funeral arrangements now call the funeral home and the cop will stay there it's called sitting on a doa a cop will stay in that apartment until the deceased is removed by the funeral home. If the medical examiner arrives and says, no, there's something more to this, then the medical examiner's office will take the deceased down to whatever borough morgue and do an autopsy. I got a quick story. There was a cop and I wasn't a big fan of him. If this happened nowadays, he would have gotten arrested. This is the uh, early nineties, laziest guy in the world. He was a housing cop. And um, he gets called to a DOA on a Friday night. Older gentleman dies in his bed. He was friends with the super. The super opens up the apartment, finds this old guy deceased in the bed. The EMS comes, the paramedics come, they pronounce him dead. And they say, okay, now you got to wait for the medical examiner. So the cop turns to the two paramedics. He goes, can't you take him? They go, we can't take him. The only way we can take him is if he's still alive or if he dies in the street in public view. He's in an apartment. you got to wait for the medical examiner. So it's a Friday night. This guy wants to go out. And the last thing in the world he wants to be is tied up with this dead guy sitting around an apartment for, for six or eight hours. So about half hour later, those two EMTs get a call back to that building, back to that floor. Comes back as another cardiac. They go rushing up the stairs. They go like, what are the chances? We were just 10 minutes away. They go rushing back into the building. They run upstairs. And who's in the hallway with the dead guy that died in his bed, like 45 minutes later, is now in the hallway on the floor. 
And the cop is standing there and he sees the two EMTs that just pronounced him dead. And they go, what the fuck just happened? He goes, you're not going to believe this. After you guys left, he jumped up, he ran out of the apartment and he collapsed on the floor. And they said, no, he didn't. He was dead. <laughs> in there. So they got the sergeant there and he got suspended and placed on modified assignment. That was pretty much, he kept his job, unfortunately. But yeah, he moved to DOA to avoid working overtime. If that was nowadays, he would have gotten arrested, but it was the early 90s and it never made the, the, <laughs> the press. But yeah, fucking guy moved to DOA to get out of work. And there's more of that story. That's in my book, The NYPD's Flying Circus, Cops, Crime and Chaos. So everybody that dies, no matter if it's natural or suspicious, the police is called. Yes. The police always shows up in New York. Yeah. And then a medical examiner always comes. Well, first the paramedics come. They kind of half-ass pronounce you dead. Yeah. They check all your vitals. And I mean, and I've seen people rotting. You know what I mean? And, and, and they still have to check for a pulse. And then, <laughs> the, then the medical examiner comes. So there's a lot of medical examiners? No, <laughs> there's, there's actually not. I was going to say, this sounds like a job that's like 24-7. Oh, I had a medical examiner show up one time eating a slice of pizza, smoking a cigarette. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's, it's, it's not like, like a television, like the guy is like in a suit or something. <laughs> It's some guy in a rumpled suit, you know what I mean? Like bought something from Mo Ginsburg, you know, and, you know. He looks like he could be the next DOA. Like, like you're a medical examiner cutting up dead people. You, you know, you look like shit. You know what I mean? That's not to say that this, you know, in shape triathlon medical examiners, but from what I saw, they tend to look like somebody lurking around the back of a funeral home. And yeah, I had a guy one time show up eating a slice of pizza with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. <laughs> I'm just like looking at him like, all right. He was in the middle of dinner. Yeah. So our medical examiners, are they MDs? Yeah, I would think so. Yeah, because they're, they're what do they call them? Forensic pathologists, I think is the yeah. title. Yeah, that's interesting. So did you, you wanted to be a police officer. Did you, when you were finally a police officer, did you enjoy it? Loved was every it... minute of it. That's awesome. Do it again. If I could go, if Doc Brown and Marty McFly showed up with the time machine, I would do it all over again. Yeah. So you didn't want to retire? I did want to retire. Things were changing. Listen, everybody outlives their usefulness. Yeah. I worked, I worked, I was lucky enough that I always wanted to work in the auto crime division. I always wanted to work organized crime. And I did that for 10 years and I enjoyed every minute of it. But everybody outlives their usefulness. In my book, I equate... A 20-year career with the NYPD is a merry-go-round ride. You got your ups, you got your downs, it's fun, it's wild. And if you stay a lot, if you stay around too long, CBIS is gonna throw you on your head. So you gotta know when to get off that merry-go-round and leave on your own terms because if you don't, they're gonna make it really uncomfortable for you. Things change, your supervisors change, the guys you work in change. And I didn't want to be one of those guys that just hung around too long. I wanted to start the next chapter of my life. Yeah, so your neighbors probably know you're a retired police officer. Do they ever come to you for like police related things? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I get asked all the time. Like once somebody finds out that you're retired law enforcement, and it's funny, I'm writing a chapter in my new book, Is This Legal? Because people will come to you, is this legal? And like, as they're, and they're telling me the story, I'm like, 
I'm saying to myself, well, you already did this, and now you're waiting for the other shoe to drop, or you've got this really bad idea that you're contemplating taking, and you almost want me to um, validate it for you. Oh, yeah, fucking go ahead. Yeah, no problem. Nothing's going to happen. You know what I mean? I had a guy, I, I first moved down here, didn't know him from a hole in the head, and he's telling me he's being... Uh, he, he got involved. He was married. He's telling me he got involved with a stripper and now her and her pimp are extorting him. And I'm like, you got to go to the cops. Well, my wife's going to find out. I go, well, they're going to find out one way or another. You might as well go to the cops. You're getting extorted. Yeah, that's so funny. Well, tell everybody that's been listening to this episode where they can find your books and, uh, you know, where they can contact you. If they're interested in connecting with you. Sure. My name is Vic Ferrari. If you go like the car, if you go on Amazon book section, just type in my name, Vic Ferrari. I've written four NYPD themed books. Like I said, they're short stories about uh, funny, interesting criminals, cops I work with that have gotten themselves in trouble. I know a cop that stole a horse and carriage ride for a wild ride through Central Park. So my stories, my books don't have a beginning, middle, end. They're just short stories about things that happened in my NYPD career. I've written two other books. Um, my latest is called Confessions of a Catholic High School Graduate. It details growing up in the Bronx and me being a little son of a bitch running around causing trouble and straightening out my life and becoming a New York City police officer. All my books are on Amazon. They're about 200 to 240 pages long. I keep the price point at 10 bucks because... I want to make it affordable for people. And all my books are also available on Kindle or ebook download for $2.99. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at VicFerrari50. And I've got a Facebook page, but I have no idea what the address is. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Vic, for being on the show. I really enjoyed hearing your stories. Thank you. And I appreciate the opportunity to have me on your show. Thank you for listening. If you have a weird experience to share, please email me at contactstargazingangel at gmail.com. Check out our website on tinakinneyclark.com. Also, we're on Facebook and like us on Facebook and share your favorite episodes with your friends and family. I look forward to hearing about your weirdest experience.